This is InX, a show about inclusive design. I'm your host, Matt May. In this episode... If graphic designers don't know the land, all right, go to Barnes & Noble, go get a book, and you open a book of seeing what plants are, like the ethnobotany in the area. There's not much connection or a lot of inter- interdisciplinary between ecosystems and graphic design. So I feel like people are missing the point. Like they're missing the, yeah. the connections. Like they can't envision what that looks like. Part two of my conversation with Sadie Redwing. In case you missed it, Part one of this interview is still available. If it's not in your feed, you can download it and the transcript at inx.show or check the show notes for the link. Now let's jump in where we left off. One of the reasons why I like to stay in the realm of higher education is because colleges and high schools, the snowball is forming, the dominoes are falling. So if they're seeing national identities, mascots crumble, then there's, ooh, for a high school, and we know that this is happening and we have a racist mascot, what do we do? To give an example, University of Illinois, Chief Illinois Walk, their mascot. December 2021, University of Illinois put out the imagery implementation plan, meaning that instead of relying on that chief mascot, if you're so dependent on that one emblem where it has a gentleman with a full headdress, if you take that away, then what do you do? You got to not necessarily restart from scratch, but as someone working within the branding department or somebody who might be working within emissions where like, oh, we got to change our brochures here. We got to change our view book or we need to figure out how we're targeting these Native American students. Because essentially a lot of institutions across the nation are looking to recruit more Native American students. And If you have a history of either your institution being a boarding school or having a racist mascot, it's going to be a little bit harder to have trust with that demographic. So in thinking about how us as graphic designers, why this is important within this work and why it's so overlooked, it's because there's no blueprint. I don't think when institutions in the 1800s, early 1900s, or even to mid 1900s, they probably didn't think there's going to be someone like me talking on this level. So I think every, all that brushing under the rug, like the rugs, like not covering anything anymore. So hence, again, another reason why conversations are important like this so that we can get more indigenous graphic designers to come in and train in missions on how to go away and how to work on their branding, particularly if they're um, dependent on a, a racist mascot. And then if we can get that train their trainer models started in there, then it can be brought into at a high school level. So I can see, I can anticipate like the the snowball rolling. And I think what is challenging, this will go into decolonization as well. If we take out the person, if we take out the exaggerated gentleman, what's usually the larger nose, what do we, what do we use? And then going back to what we um, we were talking about before the break is land tropes. So in means of needing to know what plants are indigenous to the area, trees, animals, foods, like all these elements that we can be using as tropes, not exploit them, not exaggerate them, but be creative and build more respectful visual languages for non-Indigenous people to use to help target us. I feel like this is where the conversation around decolonization is not being had at that level, thinking about how do we regenerate land resources that are going to be needed for visual languages when targeting indigenous demographics. So this is where I come in talking about decolonization, because I can see this conversation being spiraled out and we're not necessarily talking about 
the destruction of land and how that is effective in a graphic design space. Again, if you're not in a position of being experienced, if you're United States and you don't have the experience of being colonized by United States government, then I don't understand how you could be doing decolonizing work (laughs) in the United States if you're not actually uh, integrating indigenous populations are being affected by colonization. So when I'm brought into conversations around decolonization in graphic design, I do it two ways. It's a complex layer. And at the very root and core, it's land. You look at the definition of colonization. We're talking about ownership of land, space, territory, region. We're not necessarily talking about colonialism. We're not talking about the Bible here. We're not talking about how policies and rules are structured. So think about that military style or thinking about our everyday lives of why are we expected to eat three times a day? Why do we go kindergarten, school, college, job, retire? Why do we are expected to be at school at eight? All that structure, policy and rules, that's within a colonial conversation. I feel like that conversation gets thrown on top of colonization and we never talk about land as graphic designers and talking about colonization. I never hear it. Panels, conferences mm-hmm. sit on like I'm the always ones that are like, all right, land rights, go to the treaties. Let's really talk about colonization here. If a case study is we want to design a better mascot or better logo or something better that is more respectful targeting the demographic, we need to research. And part of that research is seeing what plants or the whole natural resources here. And it's hard. I'm sitting here in Toronto and all I see is concrete jungle. I couldn't tell you what tree is indigenous here. I couldn't tell you what animal is. I couldn't tell you what fruits are grown here. So I can understand why it's hard to target the Mississauga tribe here when I don't see anything that is relevant to what... I don't see anything relevant to their stewardship. So meaning that if all tribes, if you translate all tribes the way that they categorize themselves are always a protector or something. So I'm Lakota, uh, the protector within the prairie, the Navajo, Hopi, there might be protectors within the Grand Canyon. Look at all the Salish uh, tribes, they're protectors within the Northern Pacific, within tribes down in California, the Southern Pacific. So if it's rooted and ingrained of us to protect these lands, then that's how we want to be targeted. So if, if graphic designers don't know the land, all right, go to Barnes & Noble, go get a book, and, and you open a book of seeing what plants are, like the ethnobotany in the area. There's not much connection or a lot of interdisciplinary between ecosystems and graphic design. So I feel like people are missing the point, like they're missing the the connections, like they can't envision what that looks like. So when if you were to take a class of mine, we start on, okay, in the desert, you have these resources and it's reflected in this visual language. Here, let's say within the woodlands area, same thing. So if you're working, so let me give an example. So working I uh, was invited to work with the Massachusetts tribe of Pompanog, implementing a plan for the city of Boston to lease land within their sovereign nation. Now, again, this is nation to nation. It's not a neighborhood asking Boston to rent from them. It's actual government. So in a nation to nation, I think another thing that is disconnected with graphic designers is that as a Native American graphic designer, your portfolio is going to demonstrate how to design for an entire government. 
versus a traditional Canadian-American student, your portfolio is probably going to get you into a design firm or tech firm or something. Like, you're not, you don't have a responsibility to target an entire government. Like, not everybody leaving our, like, our students wouldn't necessarily be submitting to go design for the White House, where I might have a student who needs to go work with their tribal government. So there's not much training in how to design. So if, if a student's responsibility is designed for that tribal government, they're going to have to know what foods are traditional to the area, what animal resources they use, what the migration and patterns within their climate and within the animals in the area. So when we start to get in this sense, then we then it starts to feel a little bit like, ooh, like I feel like people can't get away from hearing the word primitive. Because if I'm starting to talk about animal resources and products, mm. I feel like people start envisioning like cavemen. That's what I do not want to go down that route. So one aspect of colonization is one, it, how do you give visual representation to a nation? And so meaning that if, if the Massachusetts tribe is building documentation to work with the city of Boston, what's their header that looks like? What kind of business cards do they have? What's their website? Like, it's got to look professional. It has to look like an actual government. And I feel like sometimes people don't think about that sometimes. Another thing, too, is we, the easiest way, since we're on topic of sports, the easiest way to paint the picture of what this looks like, too, is if you could see some United States tribes more active in global events. So United States tribal nations that may participate in like the Olympics or during the break, we're talking about lacrosse or if we could see like the FIFA World Cup. I love soccer. I love football. I would love to see like the Iroquois nation or Seminole nation or Lakota nation like being at the FIFA World Cup. We're not there yet, but just really think about if we were in those global events and in those global ceremonies, like the United Nations, they sure pull us into an environment or climate change conference for the United Nations, but elsewhere, you don't really see us in a global event. So sports is the easiest to give an example to. And to bring that home a little bit is when I was working in the Massachusetts tribe, we were talking about, wouldn't it be so cool if, if tribal nations in the United States all participated in the Little League World Series? So Little League World Series, you got the word world in there. I don't see much international uh, teams in there, but it's just something that uh, Americans can grasp, meaning that everyone knows what the Little League World Series is. I think it's always in Omaha, Nebraska. And it's like little kids and from all over the nation, they, and they compete in baseball. Now, what is interesting is that practice of sports is evident and also a little note that a lot of sports are appropriated from tribes. So it just blows my mind sometimes that you don't see a lot of athletes or stuff or a lot of Native American initiatives within sports. See, maybe a lot in basketball, but it would be so cool to see the Sovereign Nation Little League World Series. And let's say that Massachusetts tribe wanted to put a team in. How would you know that tribe was from that little league baseball team? How would you know that they were from a government in Massachusetts? It's probably going to be based on their design. So let's say that Massachusetts one day wants to have their own Little League team to be in the Little League World Series. They got to demonstrate their nationality. How do you do that? How do you do that, particularly working with a tribe that has uh, little or to none 
of a solid visual language, then we got to see what resources are indigenous to the Boston area. So some of the beautiful things that have been really interesting in learning about the territory is just even something about like all the seashells, the colors, designs on seashells or like crustaceans or how animals that live in shells. So like things like hermit crabs or maybe not necessarily snails, but thing, thing like indigenous sea creatures in that area, if you look at their shells, you'll see a lot of spiral patterns. You'll see a lot of dot patterns, a lot of line patterns. You see a lot of different line patterns and birch bark within wings, within hawks. All of those could be brought into a branding guide and it would speak to that tribe and it only speak to that that, uh, Arbor area, that Boston Bay area. And that's beautiful. It gives that identity. So I'll have to show some images to share what this process looks like. Like, but that would be an example of demonstrating decolonization through design. So that is kind of more like the giving identity to a particular territory, space, treaty, land, region. The other half of decolonizing design that I don't hear much in graphic design research is the systems is how the system of reciprocity is brought into some of these spaces. And I feel like I don't hear that word reciprocal. And I feel like this is a good term used in inclusivity. Going back to what would a system look like before colonization or how do you fix a reciprocal system that worked for thousands of years, but once colonization hit, that, the, the, that system broke and there, there's nothing that has been reciprocal. Let me give an example. At OCAD, there's decolonization and sustainability in the handbook. If you're bringing an indigenous person to help demonstrate these initiatives from that handbook, we are going to talk about how, one, art and design institutions exploit resources. We do it. We're guilty. I'm guilty myself. And I'm guilty of it, but how many post-its I, <laughs> designers love mm. post-its. So think about all the times they're using post-its or just wasting paper. But uh, an example from my class, talk about, I want my students to be more sustainable. Let's not be destructive and let's not use land resources or let's think about how we exploit land resources. So Johan Gutenberg, printing press, we all know it. Like we got to know it if you're going to take a graphic design history class. So when I asked my students, you think Johan Gutenberg knew how damaging his invention would be? Like maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't because he's not here today to see like how much trees were missing now from all the paper needed. But thinking back, okay, printing press, boom, we're cranking out Bibles, we're cranking out letterpress. You build one from wood, build a couple more build some more maybe okay now we get steel we're gonna get some steel ones in there now we get like some you know, different size of letters so now we're getting more more weight <laughs> that has to you not necessarily you can pick up a printing press and go so you're stuck you're stuck in one place which doesn't fit into the nomadic tribal lifestyle two now you're cranking out books like books now where, where are all these books being stored at they're gonna be stored in the house in the basement in the cellar on bookshelves libraries <laughs> bookstores, stores, like it goes on and on. Currency, print out currency, paper. Man, it's a lot of trees. Like you like you get to the point where you were in this process from the printing press 500 years down the road. Now we got Amazon, like our t- tribes in the Amazon that are just trying to combat deforestation. Like 
the need of the customer. Well, Amazon is promoting deforestation. It's a bookstore. That, oh. was, that was the first thing that it that it did there. Yeah. I guess yeah. Uh, so even thinking about like asking students, what would this world look like if Johan said, all right, guys, after 10 Bibles printed, let's plant a tree. Like something simple. Just yeah. something like really thinking about, okay, are we thinking about that as designers? Man, like we can think of some really beautiful inventions and getting to talk about AI, but and really think about, are we thinking about how this could be damaging seven generations yeah. from now, 100 years from now? Are we implementing any plan of giving back? So if I'm using all this energy, if I'm using all these trees, am I having some type of plan that it's, it's, it's going to be fruitful? We're not using all these resources till the very end. Like we're not killing them off. In the Midwest, we see it through farming, man. Like I love farm. Like I don't mind farmers. I guess I got ranchers in my family. But when I talk about decolonization, I'm talking about how farmers have just, man, you're eliminating our buffalo and you're killing our soil, then we get into conversations around regeneration. So these conversations around systems, regeneration, exploiting land resources, that's decolonization. That's colonization. And I feel like designers, graphic designers and system designers, we should be bringing this conversation around climate change. I don't see that happening in, in this aspect, but how this trails into inclusivity and talking about reciprocal cycles, something that function and works. Now we can talk about how a tribe has developed that. Man, it took us a thousand years to establish our hierarchy. So maybe thinking about how we do chess pieces or whatever, but think about hierarchy of tribe. This is why it's so hard for my job because you can't, it's hard to envision this. But if we, so let's say that Everybody who was protecting the prairie from Calgary all the way down to the Carolinas, we had to plan out how we assembled people to take care of all that grass, all that grassland, let alone we had to follow the buffalo and the buffalo tilled that soil. And man, that's all that was our life for thousands of years was just making sure that the buffalo continued within their pattern because that's kept our soil alive. And I never thought to this day that I'd be advocating for tall grass. <laughs> but the point of, of that is understanding that how we set up how we set up people to have a duty, a responsibility. And if they do their task that is gonna have a goal and have a responsibility and it works in that in that system or that community or the group of people set up in a way that it works. It'll be reciprocal. Man, that that reciprocal framework can go for thousands of years. And that's what we really need in this space. And talk yeah. about inclusivity. I come into the space of look, tribes work. Like I am one of the few in the United States in Canada and speaking as someone as a, a tribal member is that I know what a tribe is. Like I literally am in a tribe. Like I should be the expert to know what it's like to not be a individual. So in these spaces around being inclusive, I think of it as a tribe and I don't necessarily hear those same frameworks or hierarchies of how a tribe works in a reciprocal pattern. It's evident that we have been living for thousands of years, but it, when you bring that timeline into today and even a smaller timeline in the realm of graphic design, there could be some use of some of that traditional or that historical context that could be useful. So even to just seeing how if there's in a workspace or in a business space, and if you're just not getting along because you, because you can't put your differences aside, you're not being inclusive, then there's no reciprocity. These goals aren't getting completed I feel like yeah. in in areas that need to be inclusive the most, 
why aren't they looking at tribal professional spaces of tribal members who have to put their differences aside and work. And at the end of the day, it's about a responsibility goal and what's your task to, to do that. And I feel like that idea of system, I feel like people are missing the mark in talking about that in decolonization and inclusivity. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about this. Systems thinking is something that really dovetails with, with inclusive design because at least from my perspective, inclusive design can't start from a perspective of how can I get away with the thing that I always wanted to do? Like you can't just hide away that harm is being done somewhere else by the core thing that you want to, to do. There has to be some sense that you are actually willing to change the thing that you were planning on doing based on the information that you gain from doing this inclusion work. So let's put our differences aside. Let's think about things in, in a collective sense that kind of gets to the heart of inclusive design. I want to get into the theory part of this and, and how it connects to design communities. And I want to separate kind of the differences between what I call lowercase inclusive design and uppercase inclusive design, right? If you say inclusive design to people, people know the word inclusive, they know the word design, and then it's just anything that connects those two things. And it, it doesn't really necessarily mean that it's not still exploitive. It's not still extractive. It's not still colonialized. It's just that they see a different face in, in the marketing, that kind of thing. But when we talk about inclusive design at, at OCAD and the, the Inclusive Design Research Center, which is part of OCAD University, like their definition is that inclusive design is design that is inclusive of the full range of human diversity with respect to ability, language, culture, gender, age, and other forms of human difference. And that practically, this requires things like participatory action research and co-design, that ultimately you don't get that far in inclusivity without an actual dialogue, not we read the book you know, and we got what we wanted out of it, but that there are actual people in the room and that they have agency in, in the discussion that you're starting. Sometimes that means you don't do the thing that you wanted to do. If you're not willing to understand that maybe the way that you're doing this is wrong, then there's no path forward to this. It's really just empty gestures to do that work. And so I wanted to think to, to talk about in general, how do you see those kinds of values instilled in design culture today? Like, how do you see us teaching this to generations of designers that, that are coming up, wherever they may be? I think maybe the best way I can share this is try to paint a picture of how it makes sense to me. And again, this is just me based on my rhetorical criticism, my experience, how I identify. I think there's been times where I felt like I haven't been included or maybe I was included and acknowledged in, say, a classroom. So let's say we're talking in a classroom. So I'm a student. I'm with my colleagues, my cohort. And and maybe we're discussing a homework assignment or a reading or whatever. And I feel if I share my input or my two cents or share my thoughts on whatever the material may be, if someone doesn't get what I'm saying, it's either ignored <laughs> or it's, oh, okay, good point. All right, on to the next. There's no one helping me flesh out, okay, am I making sense? And there's not that response and exchange. I feel like sometimes when we're bringing ideas that have a strong, have a longer history, I feel like there's just still that line of what primitive is. And I hate being in that category or having any type of relation to a caveman. It bothers me if I'm talking about natural resources, 
particularly within graphic design, and I might be speaking about a particular animal part. I'm not designing or talking about like time period or like the Flintstone. I think it's just hard for people to bridge because the, the history is just not there. So designers, man, we love fishbowl. We love being in meeting spaces. Like we love sitting around the table. We love our post-its. We love our Sharpies, whatever, our mind maps and whatnot. So let's say that Seattle or New York City or Toronto is wanting to bring a group of designers of all identities into a space And if the design problem is how to help relieve like the homeless problem, we're all designers here. Let's help design a solution and think about how we can make more sustainable housing for our homeless. If I'm in a room and there's people of different nationalities, ideas, experiences, whatever it may be, I'm coming in with my own. And if I'm saying, okay, we're talking about homeless, we're talking about shelter. If I'm the designer here, I'm probably writing down buffalo. <laughs> I'm probably around mm-hmm. teepee. We're probably going to need trees. We're probably going to need sinew. I'm writing all these things down because I think people forget that my style at home is right. a teepee and putting my post-its up and I'm seeing other people talking about solar panels or just something not relevant to, let's say, a particular animal. So I, I say, okay, so if I'm designer, I'm presenting my idea. Somebody who has traditional ecological knowledge or knowledge passed down to me that was shared from thousands of years, I know one thing. So if I'm looking at my post-it, my post-it says buffalo skin. I know buffalo hide is temperature control, climate control. Inside the buffalo hide can keep the climate controlled, I'm just going to say from 68 to 72 degrees. Anything inside the buffalo skin, it will stay that temperature. So if people are like, well, how'd y'all survive like in the blizzards back then? Because that buffalo skin protected us. So if we were going through the desert, anything like in triple digits heat, Anything inside that buffalo skin, you wouldn't be able to feel it. If I know that a natural resource can be climate controlled, that's my two cents being brought in. Now, if someone next to me, I feel like in some sense we're in spaces where I feel it doesn't feel inclusive. If someone laughed at that, if someone said, ew, we're talking about building homes for homeless. You want them to live in animal skin? I feel like people like just really like shit on (laughs) that idea to the point where, okay, now it sounds corny. Now it sounds like a caveman. Now it sounds primitive. But in reality, you don't need to make a teepee for these homeless people in New York. All I'm telling you is that I know buffalo skin is climate controlled. Get an architect, maybe find a way to invent a form of housing that can incorporate tradition or an animal product that might be more useful, sustainable, eco-friendly than bringing in more steel, than bringing in more trees and whatnot. I feel like people miss the mark. I think we just live in a world where like, no, it'd be nice to live in a condo or make a little like hotel or whatever for them. The the inclusivity aspect is, well, include my idea. Like we're scientists, we're designers. Like it doesn't have to be what it looked like in 1800s. Let's design something. All I'm bringing in is the the science of it. We didn't need a textbook thousands of years ago to tell us that Buffalo Hide was climate controlled. That is where we, that's our advantage coming in is that we know that for thousands, for seven plus generations. And it's a solid idea. It's a scholarly idea. It's an idea that shouldn't be shit on or made fun and of or snickered and at. And it's actually, there's a project right now that, that I'm aware of that's going on through the American Indian Higher Education Consortium mm-hmm. that's about indigenizing knowledge to write 
into textbooks, open educational resources. My advisor, Yuta Trevoranis, is has been working with AHEC. I've worked with AHEC and we're aware of these kinds of, of projects. And so there's this synthesis of, look, we know this about farming because we've been here longer than 200 years. These are things that have sustained us for hundreds or thousands of years. And almost if this is the only way you're going to learn it, if the only way that you're going to engage with this is if it's in a textbook, then great, here's a textbook, right? <laughs> You're talking about this as science, and if it fits as science, it's almost like the indigenous community is doing an inclusive design project with all the colonizers, <laughs> everybody that's come in after to, to say, look, here's North America, a guide. <laughs> Here are the things that you need to know about this. And it's interesting from that inclusive design perspective to see that kind of collaboration happening Without it having been a methodology, the the fact that engagement occurs is what's important. Yeah. For listeners who may not be able to get to see our reaction, when Matt said, A-heck, I just lit up because I participate A-heck, I won awards at A-heck. I'm just happy that was very referenced. Another thing that I noticed is there is still that presence or that feeling of either someone, an individual pushing ideas onto uh, a group. In the United States, a lot of the indigenous communities are always faced with somewhat depressing health facts. We have high rates of suicide. We have high rates of missing people. We have high rates of alcoholism. We have high rates of diabetes, high rates of all these ailments within us. And it always seems like instead of asking what the tribal nations want to combat some of these health issues, I feel like we get stuff forced onto us. Like me and, ooh, like you guys, we took away your food. We're feeding you this shit food. Now you're unhealthy. I have a, a concrete example of this because I was talking about living on the Navajo Nation. The reason I was there was that my mom married a guy who ran the dialysis unit at the Indian Health Service Center there. Wow. Right? And the, and the, the reason that dialysis rates were, were so high had to do with diet alcohol consumption, all of these things that, that had come along with the, the colonization of the of the vicinity, at least the last time I was there. If you drove out of the Navajo Nation in any direction, before you hit a town, you hit a liquor store because the nation itself is dry. So here we create the poison and then we say, but this is the cure, right? Here's the, the health center that's going to dialyze you three times a week because we created the problem. I, I think that gets close that's to what you're talking about. Exactly. You're, yep, meaning that more clinics are brought into the area, more gyms, more programming. You get set up with physicians and therapists, but they're still missing that core of what we need. If you ask the community what they wanted instead of these nutrition plans where we have to drive three hours to go to the grocery store to even get just healthier ingredients that are not commodities, Um it's, it's, just, it's just a whole system. Instead of what you just shared, before those dialysis treatment centers were created or any form of rehab or whatever it may be, if they ask the tribe first, the tribe is always going to say, we want our land rights because we want to hunt. We want our land rights because we want to grow our foods. And we want all these access so that when we exercise, we can do it in a form of how we did within our ceremony. So thinking about 
our when we pray and run. And if you are cutting us off from putting these in these little isolated areas with boundaries, like we just don't have those areas to explore, particularly around within like national parks too. Mm-hmm. So I guess the the point is like if you want us to be healthier and eat healthier, let us grow our food. But you're not letting us grow our food because you're not letting us be stewards of the land. You want us to be more active. You don't let us practice our ceremonies or our dances. You expect us to be in the gyms, but there's so much natural areas we could be exploring or utilizing to get us out of the house or to let us have our daily practices. Yeah, I guess the point in being about a little bit more inclusive, instead of seeing someone weaker or someone who might demonstrate more subordinate state just because they don't fit in what a modern 2022 lifestyle is. We can improve our health in traditional ways too. It's just that there's, again, there's no call and response. There's that research, that competency isn't there. No one's hearing us on what we want Uh, and thinking about systems and think about inclusive. This is why it's important to hear other people's needs and bringing us to these tables so that, okay, maybe we gave them three gyms, that's a lot of steel. And you think about how much steel goes into a gym, like all those weights and whatnot, or is any of those weights can be biodegradable? (laughs) And you absolutely hammered on that nail. You got to know what the community wants. You can't force all these, what you think that they need in there. And that's something that needs to be talked about in conversation about being inclusive, particularly when targeting a particular demographic. So I always use those two as examples. If you had two minutes to talk to every designer, how would you give an indigeneity, <laughs> inclusion and equity discussion in, in, in two minutes? All of the things that, that they don't learn, your AIGA on design talks about how your experience wasn't inclusive. It didn't talk about an indigenous design. This is something that's going to be common, I think, a, a, among a lot of the, these interviews. What's missing that if somebody's in design school and they're not learning anything other than like how to use Photoshop, what things should, should they be looking into? Oh, that's a really good one. I feel like you need to know when I say place, like actual location of uh, where you're at. These conversations that we're having in something like a podcast is going to be a resource. If it's going to be used in the United States or used in North America, make sure that you know how to define these words and make sure how they're demonstrated based on the locations. This whole time we've been talking about the importance of needing to know natural resources from the United States. You need to know how particular frameworks I've ever done pre-birth of the U.S. government. And I feel like some people are quick to say that so that's in the past, it's not useful now. But when you are in a situation around climate change, climate change is being talked in education, in law, in government, in health, whatever it may be. And if graphic designers and designers are some of the first that have to interact with some of these conversations or social issues, then I feel like we need to be ahead of the game and do a little bit more in thinking about humanity, I would say. One of the reasons why I feel like we're at the head of the game is because I always see the word design as something like invent. And if you, if we are the experts in invention, our inventions better be useful and sustainable and be fruitful and be able to work. If designers are calling themselves inventors, we are the ones developing the models. We are the ones developing the infrastructure. A designer has to design a school before you can get kids into school and them to get a degree and out. So design is always going to come first. If we come first in any form of invention that is going to demonstrate human existence, 
then we better make sure that what we invent does its job, has responsibility, the tasks are done, and it continues to work. If it doesn't work, then what do designers do? We go back to the problem and try to design a solution. I feel like we should be mindful in how powerful we are as people particularly as designers, as graphic designers are very powerful because we are the ones that allow someone to see their language. We allow someone to see their identity because we give visual proof that something exists. And I feel like we don't think of ourselves as individuals of that much power. So I would say the last 15 seconds of my two minutes was to remind ourselves the power that we have as inventors and as someone that gives visual proof of existence And if we are the first ones going into battle, then we better have our strategy planned. And if we don't, then we're not going to survive. All right. We're going to take a pause here and then we will get into thoughts about the future. So we'll be right back with Sadie Redwing. (laughs) On the next episode of Inex. We're not going to complete it. We're not going to complete the work. Like there is no work to complete, in my opinion. It's ongoing development. I think that to say that we're going to make an inclusive world in a hundred years is a little bit pompous. A conversation with Joshua Halstead. All right, let's talk about equity first. We talked a little bit about just an indigenous perspective of equanimity, I guess you could say, that everybody's working together toward a a common purpose. So when the discussion of equity comes up in design circles, we're usually talking about the the shared ownership of things. And I know that it's a Western framing, like it's a colonialist framing for things to, to talk about ownership. But when we talk about everyone having an equal opportunity to participate in the system. What would that mean? How would we get to the point that indigenous knowledge and traditions and practices are are considered, like you mentioned in the last segment, as a peer, as a tool in a broader toolkit of humanity, if you will? Yeah, I think immediately when I hear the word equity or someone who's experienced being in an inequitable environment or not having particular resources or support or just don't have everything that everyone else has. And I see that a lot, particularly in design communities around technology and particularly around software. Again, I'm not speaking for all indigenous nations in North America, but there are a lot of nations that have the stress of or they have had mentioned the word extinction in their conversation around existence. Now, if a language, like a verbal language, even a visual language, if a verbal language is on the verge of extinction, there should be an emergency of keeping that language alive. English is not going extinct anytime soon. (laughs) There's no bat symbol up saying that there's an emergency. If English is on the verge of extinction, I guarantee there's going to be more people working to save the English language than there are right now saving the indigenous language. But let's say that we want to save an indigenous language and we want to save an indigenous language that doesn't write in Roman forms or characters, or maybe the form of writing is maybe more symbol-based. We see this with other non-Latin scripts that the software and tools that we use within our laptops, they can't write in their language. If, if you read left to right to left, up and down, whatever it is, there's many softwares that don't allow a lot of the non-Western, non-Latin languages to work within the laptop space. 
we're seeing more and more prototypes and more and more betas. So I know you can get an iPhone, you can get it in the Cherokee syllabi, or you can get it in the Cherokee language. But if a language is progressing and transforming with the introduction of Roman characters, again, it's, it's not doing its whole part on saving the language. It could be a little bit dumb, but we have to have that Roman influence to survive now. And it sucks to be dependent on it. And I wish that there was more activity in building more and more software and resources for those aspects. What is interesting being in that space of previously may have been near extinction was we have the need to build any resource and in means of talking about technology. And this is what is the beautiful side. We talked a lot about negatives. We talked a lot about more gloomy stuff, but on the beautiful side of the sensitive work is that this is another reason why I'm going to be working until I'm a hundred is that you don't see indigenous represented in anything that you interact with every day. So right now I got Ikea desk every time. I know where Ikea is from. It's European, Swedish, or Scandinavian. Every time when I see this Ikea desk, I'm reminded of that. Could you imagine if there was one tribe in the United States and they had their own Ikea, meaning that you bought light bulbs, you bought dishes. So every time you saw that light bulb or that dish, or maybe you bought a pillow and you knew that it came from a native nation, then you can be like, ah, like there is some type of existence. So when you think about when you look in your homes or your dorm rooms or whatever, you don't see anything. I wish I could go to a sovereign nation and buy a laptop made from a Native American nation, Mm -hmm. their own government. I wish there was a tribe just with a large workshop and just outputting Lamborghinis and Ferraris because I would love to buy a high-end like vehicle that was made by a warehouse from a tribal nation. You don't see any of that fast food a little bit, not so much, but I still can't go into Mall of America or still can't go into a mall in LA or Seattle, or maybe Seattle, where there isn't a fast food chain that has Native American food. Just even something like that. What being inequitable means to me is that because of colonization, I can't have my fruits. So one fruit that I Uh, E is choke cherries. I can go, I can't go into any grocery store and get a pint of choke cherries. I can go get a pint of blueberries. No problem. Maybe even a pint of huckleberries. If I was in Washington, I can get raspberries. I can get strawberries, some kiwi. Even I can get dragon fruit. I can get star fruit. I can get papaya, but I can't go into any grocery store and get a pint of choke cherries. And that fruit is from here. And that blows my mind. And one of the reasons why we can't get choke cherries is because we have stupid laws in South Dakota, like the war party law, where if there's more than five natives on um, a particular property, they can you know, be shot at. So, of course, there's not natives picking choke cherries out there. Two natives picking choke cherries can't pick enough choke cherries to send pints of choke cherries to all the grocery stores. Like that sucks to me. Because of that, I don't have any candy flavors that are choke cherries. I can't go get a choke cherry Red Bull. I can't get a choke cherry kombucha. I can't even get a choke cherry cough drop. If I want something similar to that, and we do within our, our, our remedies that we get naturally, like juniper berries, or if I could get choke cherry, like I'd have to go pick them myself. But again, that's myself. I don't have the resources where it's right there. Like I can go into a gas station 
and I can get aloe water <laughs> or even a white claw. Like I can't get a choke cherry flavor like white claw or just even any type of like beer flavor or whatnot, but it, it sucks. And even when we think about technology, I think about the future. I would love to live in a future where I could get all those things. I would love to live in a future where I can talk to my Siri or Amazon Alexa and we could talk in Lakota. If I have a calendar right here, I love to have my own traditional calendar of a winter count. And I wish I could just go to Walmart or Target or wherever I go buy calendars at Barnes and Noble and get that stuff. I feel like people don't think about those type of things or they don't think about what a world they live in would look like if there was more representation. We're so used to seeing stuff like Panda Express, Taco Bell. But what about like a Buffalo Burger? Uh, food chain. Buffalo meat's healthier. We got seven tribal nations that know how to herd buffalo. Man, take away our casinos and we can start building higher consumer goods for buffalo meat. Man, it'd be more nation to nation relationship building. I hope I can live to see a world that day. But then also what is so exciting is I'm really starting to plan and brainstorm. Yeah, if Amazon Alexa was going to speak Lakota, then that allows opportunity for Lakota people to work with Amazon. We were talking about Amazon a little bit earlier. And the response to a question is that, oh, we never thought about that. I feel like when someone says I never thought about that, it still gives a feeling of inequity to me. Designers man, we, we do all this. We invent all this. It could be a mouse a table, whatever it may be. But just because you don't see these products that have any type of representation at a big national level, like there's families, how family owned businesses, Midwest is a strong homesteading and relationships inter international relationships with like Amish communities or maybe more, maybe other non-indigenous communities that live off the land. There's ways to get these type of things, but I don't have access, like I can't just walk up to a dollar store and go, you know, get something that is relevant to my identity. And it just blows my mind because we're right here. Like I'm not gonna go, I'm not gonna go across seas to go get me a pint of choke cherries. Like it'd just be nice to just get them here. That gives me an idea of kind of the future that you want. Are there any other touch points, things that you want either to be doing yourself as a designer or in a collective or just that you want that, that you're never going to get to? Like, what do you want the future to, to look like? I want to store with everything that I mentioned. Choke cherries. Got that. I, choke cherries. So I, day in a life, day in a life, I want to wake up. I want to be in a bed that I didn't get from Ikea. I got it shipped from a sovereign nation. Uh, Denver mattress. This is a well-known mattress. I want to, for a tribe near Denver, I want to buy a mattress from them. I want to get up and make breakfast. I want to have like my traditional food. So I want choke cherry syrup with my pancakes. I have choke cherries in them. And then I want my coffee. Just everyday things. And it's so weird that I'm saying it out loud that I don't have those things. And I, it's low-key jealousy where like maybe one of my friends, maybe from like Bosnia or even like Japan, where they can live in Canada, United States and they can formulate a daily life that has some type of historical context or identity, but I, I don't. So it'd be nice to just see some more variety of either flavors of particular food, genres of particular foods. But what is interesting and why I want this so much is because our resources are healthy. They're not destructive. Choke cherries are good for you. It's not sugar. It's not alcohol. It's not killing you. It's everything we're advocating for. Clean water, clean air, better ways of preserving land. It's all positive. So I just don't get it. I would love for one day, and I'm just saying this out of spite too. I would love for one day that I could have a student submit a thesis and explain to me why gold 
is still an addiction when we can't drink or uh, eat cold. It's heavy yeah. too. I'm waiting for someone to uh, open that can of worms along with oil where I see myself is really defining and painting a picture of what a nation to nation looks like working together. Yes, there's this nasty history between the United States and tribal nations and Canada and their tribal nations. But I just think no one's painted that picture and no one has implemented any systems to demonstrate how that works. Another thing is the technology aspect. I think a fear that I have, and I know that this is going to be coming up in my research too, is that technology or just conversation workshops and conferences around artificial intelligence is reaching rural farming areas. And I'm curious to know if there's any indigenous perspective and programming those artificial intelligence who might be working within prairie spaces. I know there are advocates out there and revitalizing the prairie. Indigenous are not, but just meaning that if you're not including uh, traditional forms of tilling soil, that might be helpful. And that's not included in how you're programming AI in these rural spaces, particularly conservative spaces. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, yeah. That's a fear for me. So I hope that the word protocol of indigenous knowledge can be brought into some of this technology that is intended to keep regeneration going in a reciprocal form. And yeah, one of these days in our lifetime, I would like to sit at a Little League World Series and it's all sovereign nations and not states. <laughs> so the only way that world is going to be created is if the curriculum's there, the motivation's there, and if there is greater opportunity to bring some of this important language of actual what ecological knowledge means, what sovereignty means. I know now we're listening to how Russia, uh, the between Russia and Ukraine and how they say Ukraine is a sovereign nation. I wish United States would give that same impression on when they mention tribes as sovereign nations, that they would treat us like a actual country. So one day... If I hope I see someone with my tribe's flag in Olympics, or hopefully one day I'll catch a FIFA World Cup game <laughs> and it has more tribes from the United States and Canada. And hopefully one day our tribes down in Mexico will get federally recognized too, because we got a lot of knowledge right. that is kept in a lot of indigenous languages. And if you're killing off the people who can translate those, that could possibly save for a transition away from harmful technologies and harmful things that we're putting in our bodies, like medicine and foods. Like we're, we got it. Like we got the playbook for it. So hopefully we can see that playbook being brought to life. Great. Last question. Who would you point to? Who do you want uh, our listeners to look into the work that you think is, is really great and important that a redesigner should, should know about? I, I get a lot of inspiration and a lot of mentorship from a variety of folks. And I would say before the generation before me was doing this work, but I feel like we just weren't as a society, we weren't as knowledgeable in these conversations as before. So I feel bad that some of the Native American graphic designers that are progressing or that are getting a little bit more older and not in these conversations, I feel bad because their work would be more relevant now than it would have been 20 years ago or 10 years ago, five years ago even. But for sure, I acknowledge and appreciate two gentlemen, one Ryan Redcorn. He has probably been the first Native American graphic designer who inspired or gave really good evidence of like good quality visual sovereignty 
in using a tribe's visual language in a way that is a little bit more modern and it works and is designed very well. And then also what has been nice of Ryan Redcorn's work is that he's part of the 1491s, which is a comedy group, and they just had Reservation Dogs on Hulu be produced. I want to see some more. It'd be nice to have a little bit more show selection on streaming platforms. I think what inspired me to on Ryan Redcorn's work is that as a way of advocating, he man like in movements that graphic designers do to get away with the with racist mascots. Man, Ryan Redcorn, all his campaigns and stuff. He he was the one who was doing the Washington uh, Caucasians or potato skins or foreskins oh, or yeah. whatever. Buffalo Nickel Creative, like they just do humorous work, satire work, but also very um, moving work that has been influential in these movements that has been allowing us to progress in a positive direction. So I I appreciate his work and have been very fortunate to speak on or just within interviews. I think we did a radio interview one time. And so I have a lot of respect for him. Greg Deal is another one. G-R-E-G-D-E-A-L. Greg Deal another gentleman having work that is a little bit more contemporary modern maybe some punk influence but i think what i admire of of greg's deal is he's a performance artist too so yes he is good at murals and does stuff within a dc area but then he also uses his body in a sense of showing action or meaning when you have been advocating these values for over a hundred years how do you get someone to see you and i feel like when i use the word fuck and fuck the stereotype like if i didn't use profanity in that title. So that's what I like about Greg Deal is sometimes you got to put yourself out there and it might be an uncomfortable position to make yourself be heard. And I respect his choices. So those are my two men influence. And then women with Ryan and Greg, they're eating at my table. So think about who's eating at the table here. I do have to uh, add Dory Tunstall, been an amazing mentor and just really has matured me in a space of how to demonstrate these values in an actual working level. So if you're a teacher or you're have any type of stakeholding position at a university, how do you bring all these feelings and actually demonstrate and make professional work? So she's been beautiful and very helpful in that sense as a mentor. Another mentor who has strong inspirations to me and that I think everyone should check out too is Denise Gonzalez-Crips. She was my chair at North Carolina State. might be able to catch a, a theme here, but just those who are not afraid to push the envelope just a little bit, not afraid to be out there, show a little bit more courage and bravery. And I feel like within her work, particularly within the 70s or within the feminism movements within California, and there's all the stuff that she's done as a female, I feel like she's been really influential in guiding me as I'm maturing to be uh, a professional woman in a graphic design space. Ryan, Greg, Dory, Denise, and then Nita Abdullah. She's a, Pakistan, a beautiful Pakistani designer, teacher at Pratt University. And we may not have cultural competency, but we have empathy and understand what historical trauma is. And again, if you are a demographic that has a historical trauma and may have been underrepresented or not included in some of these areas, she has been my area of support. And I feel like we need that. I feel like it's in means of inspiration. We do need support too. Nita is is very influential. And then last, I'll wrap it up. Neben Southall, if you Google Native American graphic designers, her link might come up. She has the Native American graphic design project. And I respect her work so much as a means of just being an individual to go and collect 
all these Native American graphic designers because I feel like you ask someone to name 10 graphic designers or even five graphic designers, they can't. So Neben has been putting herself in a position of a responsibility of collecting all lists of all ages and all generations. And it's unfortunate that we don't have a, a bigger list and we don't have a library of it. And I think people forget that we still have a lot of progression to go. We don't have stock photography. We don't have... Uh, a collection or archive of all this stuff. We're building it now. So Ryan, Greg, Dory, Denise, Nita, and Neben would be all my designers that are very influential, supportive, inspiring. I think everyone should check out their work. And I think we all share the values of being strong and really pushing to uh, a greater purpose. Again, this work is about positivity. It's about going in the right direction. It's not about negative or destruction. So that's who I go to. Great. Sadie Redwing, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me. This has been fantastic. And yeah, thank you for sharing your knowledge with me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I, again, if anyone wants to reach out or the best way to get a hold of me, I'm not super active on social media, but everything, all my handles are just my name. So at Sadie Redwing or Sadie Redwing at gmail.com. Um, Totally open for, yeah, again, if anyone has questions, need to go further in depth, we need to reconnect. We might have to do another podcast on sports. <laughs> I didn't know that I was going to do a sports podcast this morning. So now we, now I got to do it. So. I'll be ready when that project is ready. But again, man, it's been a pleasure. I just All had right. a ball. I'm just very happy to um, get a chance to share and yeah, best wishes. And I'm anxious for you to walk the stage pretty oh, soon. Oh, so am I. So am I. <laughs> All right. Thank you. That's our show. Show notes and transcripts for all NX episodes are available at nx.show. That's I-N-E-X dot show. All episodes are released under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Thanks for listening. <laughs>